This Restorative Justice Life is a production of Amplify RJ. Follow us on all social media platforms at Amplify RJ. Sign up for our email list and check out our website at AmplifyRJ.com to stay up to date on everything we have going on. Make sure you're subscribed to this feed on whatever platform you're listening on right now so you don't miss an episode. And finally, we'd love it if you left us a rating and review. It really helps us literally amplify this work. Thanks for listening. Enjoy the episode. Welcome to This Restorative Justice Life, the podcast that explores how the philosophy, practices, and values of restorative justice apply to our everyday lives. I'm your host, David Ryan Barcega Castro-Harris, all five names for the ancestors, and I'm the founder of Amplify RJ. On this podcast, I talk with RJ practitioners, circle keepers, and others doing this work about how this way of being has impacted their lives. Hey folks, I'm Elise, your producer, and we are back with another contributor to Colorizing Restorative Justice. Gilbert Salazar is our guest today, and he is an educator focusing on anger management, sexual assault prevention, and healthy relationship building, as well as conflict transformation and social-emotional learning. He uses theater and ritual work for violence prevention within young men, which I think is such a cool way to incorporate restorative justice into his life. This conversation talks about dismantling white supremacy culture, especially in terms of urgency, as well as the arts and the connection to restorative justice. Before we get into this conversation, I have a huge announcement for today. We have relaunched our community gathering spaces with the Future Ancestors Collective. Every week, our community meets online to support each other in living in this restorative justice life. We have spaces for parents, people who work in youth, an open space for everyone, and a book club and gathering just for BIPOC RJ practitioners. These gatherings are all free and open to all, and if you want to support the behind-the-scenes work of Amplify RJ, there is a space for you to make a monthly contribution. We also have a super special collaboration with Liz Kleinrock from the Teach and Transform Instagram account. She is hosting an intro to RJ, racial and restorative justice for her community, where we'll be discussing the intersection of restorative justice and ABAR education. You can check all of this out in the show notes below. And that's all for our announcements. Let's get into this conversation. Welcome, Gilbert. Who are you? Today, um, I'm alive. (laughs) Who are you? Um, I'm a writer. Who are you? I'm an RJ practitioner. Who are you? I'm a medicine maker. Who are you? I'm the son of an immigrant woman. Who are you? Uh, I'm pretty super Chicano. (laughs) And finally, who are you? I'm a person who communicates with plants and birds. Well, we're going to talk about the intersection of so many of those things throughout our conversation. (laughs) But uh, before we do, it's always good to check in in the fullest way of answering this question. How are you? I'm excited to be here. So I feel uh, like the top part of my body feels like light and my feet feel a little heavy. Mm. 
Yeah. Say more. Um, you know, I think I just, I was on the, you know, I would love to be like, I was taking notes, getting ready for this interview, this time with you. I was legit on the couch with my feet up watching an episode of Golden Girls. <laughs> and so I think my feet are ready to like be lifted. Um, but I just need the, I'm just waiting for the energy that I feel on the top of my body from my energy from in, in connecting with you to just reach further down my body and it'll get there. It'll get there. Beautiful. Beautiful. You've been doing restorative justice work, uh, for a long time, but probably as you described in our conversation before, like RJ covers so much. So you were probably doing this work long before you knew the word restorative justice, uh, in your own words, how did you get started? It's, you know, it's kind of even because it's so encompassing of, of everything, it, it's almost kind of hard to, to pin a point down. But um, when I was living in Monterey County and I had, I was a student at CSU Monterey Bay. And in Monterey County, there was a program called the Victim Offender Reconciliation mm -hmm. Program or WARP. And they were doing restorative justice training. And I think as a, th as a theoretical concept, I knew what restorative justice was. I think as like an alternate means of incarceration and juvenile justice. Um, and so I was super curious about it as a social justice um, major student. And so I went for the training and um, so I was trained in, in like restorative mediation. Um, and then from there went to work with young folks and with communities in like alternative um, or in, uh, in a re-entry program. So supporting young people who had been, um, impacted by exclusionary discipline, suspended, expelled, um, incarcerated. And so had been working with them to bring them back into, into schools and into the school district. And then after that, doing sexual assault prevention, education work. Um, and when I finished grad school, here in LA and was looking for work, I found a job posting for an RJ coordinator. And even though I hadn't been doing a lot of formal RJ work, I knew that to have like a paid position doing RJ was not a typical thing. And so I leaned into it and interviewed and all that. And um, then really steeped into RJ in schools work. And so was an RJ coordinator at a middle school in Watts um, and was like one of the first few RJ coordinators within LAUSD. Mm -hmm. And then from there slid and shifted into the organization that trained me in, in RJ practices, which is the California Conference for Equality and Justice. And I've been working with them for five, six years now on top of, of like a year and a half being an RJ coordinator. So it's been, it's been a while, it's been a long minute doing RJ yeah. work. One of the things that you said, like when you heard about like the theoretical framework, it just seemed like something that you knew to be true. What was it about that um, that resonated for you? I think it was about uncovering what was beneath the incident. And so like what was in the surround, like it, that a person isn't just defined by an action, mm -hmm. um, but that there's like a whole series of things that went into into choice making and i think that part was for me really interesting 
which then I think I had a gap or a question of like, well, how do you get there? What are the ways that you that you get that to happen? And so I think restorative practices like circle and dialogue and using relationships. And I think those have become really the things that answered that, that gap place of how do you get someone to feel comfortable to share their story? And how do you create a culture where stories are valued? Yeah, you had that um, somewhere in you. I know that like, uh, arts and writing and theater are important to you and so that storytelling um was resonant for you i imagine was that something that you developed um, as a younger person um it was something that really blossomed more as a young Mm -hmm. adult and so i think that was always i was always very quiet very shy and so that i was drawn to journaling and writing uh in films um but there wasn't always the encouragement around creative work. Um, you know, my family's very, was just trying to survive a year. Um, and so even though my parents were always about, you know, you choose what you want to do, and there was always support and encouragement, I don't think there was necessarily the awareness of, um, like where I could go take a dance class or where I could go and like take a writing class. And so I had to really kind of pursue that on my own when I was in like undergrad and then older. Um, But the moment that really hit it for me was when I was teaching a a program with young folks uh, around social emotional literacy. um, And I ended up asking them through the work of um, some friends of mine who were theater practitioners and artists and they knew about theater of the oppressed mm-hmm. and I, I knew what that was and I wanted them to come and show me like some some techniques and my friend Joanna and Jamila came to the class and had the students do some image theater and I was watching and um, you just the power of storytelling without words particularly for communities that have been impacted by trauma um, and for young bodies that want to move um, was beautiful to see and so that led me to asking the the other classes that i taught the other courses of young folks um show me your most violent choice and direct someone in your story um and knowing the full risk of what that question was and having worked with you with young folks in the community of salinas for for a while um and doing a lot of work weeks before around you know like all of the prep work to be able to get to that before inviting that experience and so that for me was really the the powerful point of this is why storytelling is really important and this is why when we don't we're not able to give the full story of of what happened on that day or at that time um then there's not going to be the the full like expression of that moment or wanting to 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 dig deeper into it um so young people have always been the greatest teachers um young people and elders and so they really taught me to take a risk in asking people about their stories which then like years later as a circle keeper it's the same thing like i'm asking people to to, we're asking people to tell their stories with a specific question or a game uh the container is circle the container the the source is the question um, but folks have to choose to step in or not. And so, but theater for me was the, the initial push for me. Yeah. 
that led me to that. Yeah, and uh, it's striking. You're one of the contributing authors to the anthology of essays, Colorizing Restorative Justice. And what stood out to me about your particular chapter was that you've written a lot of it in... Um, as like as if it was a play, as if it was a scene where you have these women of color uh, talking about their experiences uh, as a trainer. What was the inspiration for you formatting in that in that way? Well, I had written the short play up in like year, maybe like I don't know, two years before, and it had been produced and directed uh, on stage at the Frida Kahlo Theater, um, and so I saw it, you know, on stage, and and I saw it come to life, and. The stories in the short play were all like real stories of colleagues of color, of, um, of colleagues, women of color that I was working with um, who shared with me their stories about white supremacy, white fragility. And so I just kind of wanted to, to capture that and capture it and have folks converse with it. And so when I got the abstract, the call for abstracts from Living, from Living Justice Press, um, and specifically for the a colorizing RJ book, I don't know. I immediately went to to the play, and I was like, "Oh, it would be it would be cool." I've written this play. It would have been really cool to actually dig deeper in the content of it, but to still utilize the stories. And so, um, yeah. So that helped me. I guess you know, I I was leading by my own curiosity, mm-hmm. and so that I was still curious about those stories and those experiences. Um, and that's kind of yeah how I, I how I like synthesized the two, for the chapter. Yeah, it was did that involve going back to those colleagues and like asking them more questions and digging deeper, or is that just uh you know going off of the exp- their experiences which they had previously shared with you and then like, uh, you know writing based off of the observations of like all the things that you uh, have experienced over the years. Well, I had done. I had done the deep dive with them when I was writing yeah. the play, and so I was asking them, and uh, we had a like a reading of it in the office, just a very small reading, and so I, I, I was still there were still questions of curiosity, so that is what led me to write the chapter based on those experiences in those conversations. Yeah, no, that's really great, and I think. One of the things that I found interesting in having so many conversations with people who have written in Colorizing Restorative Justice is that, like, we're writing for different audiences. I'm curious, like, you, you talk so much about white fragility specifically in that chapter. Who were you intending to read uh, th- this chapter, and what were you hoping that they would get out of it? It was, I mean, the whole book is centered around the voices of practitioners of color who do RJ. Um which was already like a beautiful and refreshing place to stand. Mm-hmm. And so it was writing to folks that have been impacted by white supremacy and white fragility in training spaces. And, but that's everybody because when we, when we, when I train, when we train, it's unless we're in a racial affinity group it's with all folks. And so um, the intended audience was, I think people of color, and also white folks. I think the intended audience is anybody that has has been impacted in some way where there wasn't the, um, I don't want to talk about safety, but where the there wasn't the place of risk-taking to be vulnerable. Mm-hmm. And I think that includes everybody, but we're impacted in different ways by people's actions and by systems of power. Um, but to go back to your question, it was it was really I think I was thinking of 
folks of color initially. But at the same time, I will tell you that the going back to Sipin, which is the play that I incorporate in the chapter, the very first night that I saw it, um, uh, that I, it was staged in front of an audience, and then we had a uh, like a talk back with um, all of the writer the all of the writers because there was ten. 10 plays that were all in the same evening and it was pretty much a latinx audience and all of the writers were latinx but the 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 biggest uh, criticism about sipping was from one of the writers who was latinx and she talked about her husband and her in-laws who are white in the audience and so she was super activated by by sipping by you know the story of of four women of color talking about the impacts of white fragility and so you know there's a lot of layers even amongst um folks of color and so i i i i think i just kind of allowed all of that to flow through but centering my own experience uh around storytelling well yeah it's in those spaces it's, it's really interesting that you say that i can vividly think in my own life specifically in restorative justice spaces working with a team of folks from different backgrounds and white woman tears like drawing so much attention and even for myself it's like i think there's a balance it at the time i thought it was like hey you know like we're all here in space um we're holding each other and so like this person is displaying like pain and sadness like so let's attend to that and i had a colleague of color uh, uh, someone who is a woman of color call that person out and say like you know you're just taking up the space in all this room and like calling us out um me and another a man of color in the space like and you're giving her like all of the attention in the space where you know this is not about rescuing that person right um there is a lot of work um that like even me as a person of color right uh needs to do around how we hold um how we hold energy like that in those spaces. I try and like lean into each training or circle with like, what am I in service to or what I want to bring into this space. And one of the things that I often bring in is this idea that there's always more to mm -hmm. learn. And so I think as a way to not sh shame where folks are in their awareness or experience in emotions and in vulnerability, um, and that there at least could be this common place so that there's always more to learn and wherever you are is where you are. And, and but, and, and the other part of it that RJ has taught me is that I have the, I have the possibility to harm anybody at any time. That whether it's a game called Bibbidi Bibbidi Bop <laughs> or whether it's a question of what is a smell that you love, that there will always be the risk of activation. And so I just have to lean into that. And when there is activation or when there is harm, like how am I going to lean into to accountability with that? And so I think kind of holding that has freed me in a sense to be able to lean in more when vulnerability will happen or when I mess up, which is, which is often. Yeah. You know? um, what's an example of a time that happened? Maybe with Bibbidi Bibbidi Bot, because like, I'm just trying to imagine what that would have looked like. Um, and how did you, like, how do you recover that? And maybe, it's, maybe recover is not the right word, but like, how do you like take the next action towards healing? 
Well, with Bibbidi, so <laughs> Bibbidi Bibbidi Bop is a theater game, and I, I have a master's of applied theater, which was the year just before I started my RJ in school's work, and so when I started as an RJ coordinator, it made total sense of this idea of nobody, very few folks in this classroom, in this community, in this faculty, in my own experience. Have had to sit in a circle and respond when an object is passed around a group of thirty people, and so I was like, "That's actually kind of a ridiculous expectation to put on anybody." So, in a moment when I was drowning, meaning there was like a fight about to happen, a young person was like on the shelf about to jump down. There was all this happening. Teacher was in the corner grading papers, not in the circle. Uh, I just remembered uh, a game that I had played when I was nineteen in an AmeriCorps, and then I, through the use of of curiosity, um, and kind of setting up a challenge, and being creative, that game helped me to begin this work of of the talking piece and we're going to wait and respond and I'm going to ask you a question and you're going to give a story if you want. And so that was really beautiful um, and powerful. And so Bibbidi Bibbidi Bop is a game where you're in a circle in the pre-pandemic times and there's somebody in the middle and you go up to somebody and you say Bibbidi Bibbidi Bop and the other person who you is in the outside of is in the circle who you like a- approached um, has to say Bop before you as the middle person say bop and so if they say bop the point is to try and get someone to to say bop after you say bop and so uh and it's like a crazy silly game and i think one time early on not in rj but when i i, I co-taught uh theater classes at free la high school uh which is part of the youth justice coalition uh work you know bibbidi bibbidi bop can be a really challenging thing for anybody to say, particularly if English is not your first language or if you have, you know, issues, challenges with fluency and speech. Um, and so I think one time somebody was struggling to say bibbidi bibbidi bop. And I think what I did was I, I switched the, the student and I went in the middle of the circle and I... I just took over, but I just like eased the pace. And I was like, bibbidi bibbidi. And I just kept be super slow with it and just like, just like slowed everything down. And eventually I did get somebody out, which is part of the game. But I think it was just a thing of like, it doesn't have to be this speed. It could be slow. And so I think that was an example of like s- switching it up to accommodate what needs to happen. And I think going back to the power of games that the remix is always possible. And so if somebody, and there, there's different things that you do in, in the game of a bippity bippity bop. It's not always just that one phrase. Um, but I think RJ's taught me that the remix is always possible. Yeah, I'm thinking back to when I was having a conversation with Kay Pranis about like, this work is about values. Mm-hmm. It's not about technique. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And so like, yes, there are rules to the way Bibbidi Bibbidi Bop was originally played. But if in the process of playing that way, you're harming folks, like what do you need to do to switch it up? 
to meet the needs of the people. Uh, so this is like an inclusive, fun, silly, like let's make fun of um, ourselves as we struggle <laughs> over words and like weren't paying attention, right? Um, I hope, uh, I think you did a good job explaining um, what is a difficult game to explain over an audio medium. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, like, Cause I know the game, but for those that aren't listening, oh, okay. um, YouTube a video of it being played yeah. and um, that will make sense. Um, you, you mentioned that, you know, you have done a lot of, a lot of your work has been training, right? Whether it is um, as an RJ coordinator in a school or now with CCEJ where you're working with multiple schools. Um, what is a lesson that you've learned about uh, training uh, that you'd like to share? A lesson that I've learned um, about training is to listen to my intuition. Mm-hmm. Um, and so to, to find the temperature of the room, um, and to switch something if that needs to be switched. And so that the agenda is not, the agenda is not precious, um, that the container is, um, important and of value, but the agenda itself is not precious. And so if my intuition or if my, if I'm assuming something, then I, I, I need to try something different. Um, and until I hear laughter or people naming what they need, um, or people just looking as if they feel comfortable in the space. And so I think it, um, yeah, intuition to listen to intuition and to to pause for that, you know? And so if, if I'm not sure what the group needs or what I need, um, sometimes I'll just, you know, sit and hold some silence. And often in that, when I do that, in that silence, intuitively, there's some message. Um, and in a very deep way, I don't think I've ever said this to anybody, but sometimes in holding that space, uh, I can hear what the question is that someone is, is in someone's head that isn't being asked. Um, and so for me, then it's a space of how do I, what do I do in this container so that that question could be expressed or that need or that statement could be expressed. Um, and so I think deep listening and intuition have really sharpened my, my own skills because I think I came in with them, but I think the work of particularly circle, uh, has really helped me with that. Yeah, it's this thing about. Uh, I th- I think a lot about uh, the characteristics of white supremacy culture. That's how we frame a lot of our work with Amplify RJ against that, right? Uh, so when we think about like worship of the written word, like oh, we got to cover this, 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 like with a sense of urgency, it has to happen like within this time, um, and like you know, not really caring about the the process of getting there, but just making sure the the quantity of what we've covered um, or all of that is there um, doesn't lend to really teaching this work well. Um, You know, restorative justice work. um, uh, One of my uh, mentors, one of my teachers in the past shared with me that um, this work is too urgent to rush. And so like we do need to take those moments to slow down, like you said, because um, if people aren't getting them, get, understanding this learning, and you're pushing them past that, like 
they're not having a good experience and so they're much less likely to embody uh, this work. And as much as uh, we really need people to make these changes in the, in, and shift the way that we are um, as a society and with each other, um, it's not a thing that we can force on our timeline, you know? Yeah, and I think the, the, one of the beautiful things about this work is that it's caused folks, it can cause folks to pause, um, you know, to legit be like, we're gonna play a game and we're going to be in this game until we're not. And so uh, I think just the ability to pause is such a, a, can be a challenging thing in this, in this modern life, in this moment, even before the pandemic. Um, yeah. Um, what helps you remember that in life and as you do this work? In life, uh what helps me to pause is I think just, you know, really tapping into how my body is feeling, you know, even, you know, you gave the gift of the question of how am I mm -hmm. doing? And so I just, you know, immediately felt that my shoulders felt different from my feet. And so like just naming that and naming that not to question it, but just to name it. Um, and so I think, to name and identify and recognize what is being felt in the moment is really powerful for me. That helps me to pause um, in my life. And then I think in, in this work, um, having things that are objects that are really important for me, um, having like a stone in my pocket or having a talking piece that's really of value next to me, um, having like sprays so you know in the in the before times when we trained in physical space you know i would bless the room and there's different sprays that i use and i would do that uh, i would spray myself and then it's like essential last, oils okay yeah like essential oils or sprays that i would make um and then last spring i got super anxious and like overwhelmed and you know the beginning of virtual world and virtual work which i was not used to um and then i realized that i didn't i wasn't doing any of those things like i wasn't spraying myself or my area or having the things that were really of value to me i also wasn't smudging myself after a training which i is also a practice um and so i just i was like oh you know this this pandemic made me i forgot that those things are important to me um and so yeah and the other thing that i do which i also like i don't really i don't talk about this in coaching with folks or in a training so i'm super happy to name it now but I, a part of my preparation has always been prayer and so it's always been intention setting and gratitude for myself and my body my skills and the ancestors and spirits that have brought me into this moment in my story and what i want what i'm asking for today is boom or blank this and may an ancestor or a spirit guide or a relationship do the same thing for each of the participants and when i was feeling super anxious in like april may of last year and i was doing all the coaching and trainings um i, I wasn't doing that and so I forgot about that. And so that part of my prep work that helps me to ground me and pause me is intention setting and prayer for me and for the folks that I'm going to be in space with. 
um, and I've seen a difference when I when I don't do that. That I'm not I and we are just not in a in a grounded place. Um, and so for me, that's been super important. And when I do coach folks in this work, I ask them before a conversation or a training that you're doing or a circle, what's your what's your own preparation? I think that's that's really important for folks to have before they engage in any type of restorative practice. Yeah. Um, this work being so much about relationships and the first relationship we have is the one with ourself, right? How are we taking care of ourselves as we're moving in to do work that's taking care of others is, is really important to remember. I, so I really appreciate you, like before we got on recording, you know, asking me, like, what are the things that I've been doing? Cause it's been tough, um, in these days, I think partially pandemic wise, for sure, not being able to see people in the way that, um, we used to, and like just not having those same feelings, like, you know, having trained, you know, like upwards of 1500 people or sat in space with 1500 people, like giving this kind of learning to, it's like, it's not the exact same thing where like, it's just click, click, click. And here are, you know, 30 new faces, um, versus like, you know, walking into a room, putting down, um, your, your center, um, arranging chairs, um, taking a moment to sit in your chair, right? I sit in this chair all day. <laughs> Sometimes I stand, like I just recently got the standing desk, but um, it, it does take a lot more intentionality. Uh, how else have you uh, adapted this work um, in pandemic life? How else have I adapted uh, to this work um, in virtual space? Um, there was always, I and a lot of my colleagues would always play music, you know, when we would open up the room and folks would come in. And a really beautiful thing about training over Zoom is that the moment that you let folks in from the waiting room, you could like queue up a song. And so they come in and they hear the song before even they like see your face or as, as they see your face. And so that's been a really powerful adaption. It's similar, I guess, to when you walk into the room, to a room, but I think there's something really beautiful about when folks, the little windows pop up and I'm playing like a Stevie Wonder song and folks, you know, begin to like move. Um, and so that's been a really, that's been really nice to, to incorporate music. And I think to really challenge folks, invite folks to really listen. Um, whereas before folks might still walk in on their cell phone or talking to somebody else. And so I think that the, pausing more for the sound for the music is really helpful or sometimes in that last may when it was the end of the school year i would have uh like a soundscape so i'd have like a crackling fire or like water like ocean waves as folks would come in from the waiting room i think the other thing is i mean i miss people i miss turning to folks in a circle mm -hmm. And so, but there is something even more vulnerable about like people are flattened in front of you as opposed to like in a, in a round space. And so I almost find like looking more directly at people, like there's that more of that option or availability um, when folks have their cameras on. And then I think that other thing that comes to mind is that, you know, I could wear 
I could wear like really cozy shoes or like really nice cozy sweats that I may not have been able to wear before or like show up with a beanie, you know? And I think because, you know, barbershops have been closed and we're in a pandemic and like we're all we're all in this. We're all impacted in various ways, some of us more than others, but we're all impacted in some way. And so I think that just it's kind of brought more of that realness and additional vulnerability of oh, I can see your kitchen, or oh, that's your couch, or oh, that's your baby in the background, or that's your dog barking. And so I think it's, in some ways, this virtual world and training, I think, has humanized us in a deeper way, in a faster way than in circle. So like, for example, one of the things that we, we do in CCJ on like day two of community building, in a, when we train in, train in the physical form, is asking folks to bring in an object of significance or value to share, you know? But that becomes their homework because we say on day one, tomorrow, please bring in an object of value or significance. And we've turned that into like a scavenger hunt on the day of. And so we're like, we're gonna give you a break. You've got 10 minutes. Here's a, a list of different prompts of objects that you can choose from. Please, on your break, select one. And when we come back, we're gonna ask you to show it to the camera. and. One of the like one of the prompts is show us a place in your and your show us a view that folks don't often get to see. And so sometimes folks have showed like this is where I cook food in the kitchen or this is where I create. And so like they get up and move the phone or the laptop. And that has been really powerful to like watch. Um, and so that's been an adaption that has been really nice in this moment. Yeah. Um, the, the values stay the same, uh, the text, the techniques change, right. Based off of our surroundings. Um, it's just still very much with me. Um, you know, we have, uh, a lot of us have had to adapt. Um, you, you and I sit in the position where we're teaching folks, um, to do this work. Uh, but I do this, I do it more from the perspective of individuals who are coming uh, and looking to learn. You're doing it from the perspective of you're working with specific schools, right, who are going through this process. How have you, and because you're working with multiple schools, you've seen how people have adapted. Uh, I know it would be helpful for people who are listening who work in schools to hear some of like the challenges and successes people have had uh, adapting this work to the school context. A lot of the challenges are still similar to even before the pandemic, which is around time. And so schools will be like, I, when is there the time in the PD to do a check-in question or to play a game? Or when do, a teacher will say, when, when in the day can I do circle? Um, and that is still a challenge, even in this virtual uh, distance learning world. Um, and my standing in accountability and of this work um, and my work as a coach is to really ask very focused questions. And so a question sometimes I could ask is, if there wasn't the time before and there isn't the time now, then when will the time be that um, if we can't take the, if we, if we have not checked in to ask colleagues and students how we are doing in a moment of collective crisis such as in a pandemic um, or in the a daily crisis moment of a day um, 
then when can we? And so I, there's the continued challenge around time. And so I think this is where sort of RJ kind of looks up at transformative justice, which is really thinking about, asking about the whole system that we live in. And RJ, at least the way the CCJ is practicing it, is not so much about creating the whole structure of a, of a school, but it's more about what in the structure of the school that exists can be can be uh, re-altered to meet the needs of relationships or to meet the needs of um, people of, of people um, and so a challenge continues to be time um, the schools that paused to make time to ask a check-in question in the PD or play a game or it took 15 10 minutes a week to be in circle the schools that found ways to to do that before the pandemic had a easier transition in in um in distance learning the schools that were struggling with that um continue to struggle and i think one example is students with their cameras turned off and so i've asked teachers or principals of who's who's What's the impact of restorative dialogue or games or checking questions in terms of teachers that, are, that use them and teachers that don't? And the, the, the response that most principals say is that they think about it and then they're like, actually, Miss So-and-so, who does a lot of affective statements, she has more cameras turned on than Mr. So-and-so that, um, that doesn't. And so I think that the, there's that simple way of evidence um, that shows, you know, in terms of wanting the camera on and off, and obviously there's a lot of challenges and complications of um, wanting your camera on, especially for a young person and also for a, a, a grown person. Yeah, the time continues to be a challenge. And um, the I think the other challenge that I would name is folks own vulnerability to try something that might seem like a risk um, or that challenges their own positional power and so a teacher responding to a, a question about how they feel can be a risk for them in terms of their own ideas or notions of safety and so in training and coaching we work a lot with teachers around what was the imp around their own impacts when they share and express with colleagues and or how that impacts their relationships and so um i think pandemic or not a distance learning or not time and vulnerability are still i think the biggest challenge time a challenge within systems and vulnerability a challenge of people that have been impacted by living and working in those systems um yeah, it's funny because like those are the same challenges that we experience, uh, whether we're um, in person or IRL, really. Um, we're, we're challenging, um, you know, the way things have been for for years. We're, we're challenging a school system that doesn't prioritize relationships. And like if you're not going to make the time to prioritize relationships or if you yourself decide that you're not going to participate in relationships in that kind of vulnerable way in a way that shares power like mm. that's not um gonna help the work have you worked with any schools that have like been able to make that change during the pandemic 
in terms of building relationships. Yeah, because and... you were saying like the ones that were doing it well before <clears throat> are doing it well now, and those that weren't like maybe not so much. I I think I see principles, some principles, the ones that have been struggling around like time making, um, and and goal setting in this work. I think I've seen some some of those principles really pause in their PDs to ask folks how they're doing or um, to have expectations around um, it's okay to not be okay. And I think maybe that's been, I think, one of the more powerful things um, that I've heard in terms of messaging from some from some administrators um, around just setting this framework that this time is really, really stressful and activating. Um, and so it's okay to not be okay. And also, uh, around self-care and around creating space for teachers to talk about self-care, um, which I think was, is always was something that many schools have done even beforehand. But I think there were the schools that have been trying to do or incorporate or go deeper into this work in this time. Um, I think I've seen folks, yeah, like one, like given this framework of it's okay to not be completely ready and what are you going to do to take care of yourselves and i think that that one question can be really impactful yeah for sure um and i've heard you have conversations with multiple people that you've worked with on your podcast what you know about rj is one of the other reasons that i'm really excited to have you today not just because of you know the work that you're doing here where we both are in southern california not just because of uh, your contributions to uh, colorizing restorative justice but as far as i know uh Restorative Justice on the Rise, the podcast by Molly Rowan Leach, this one, and your podcast, again, what you know about RJ on Apple, Spotify, and all the other uh, podcatchers, um, are the ones that are like out there talking about this work. And uh, most recently, you've been talking with people who you've been working with uh, in schools. Uh, tell us a little bit about the, the podcast and uh, what made you start one. I, before this CRJ book, there were and still are very little works that document this experience of RJ work by um, practitioners of color specifically. And so that was a big gap. Um, and practitioners of color that do this work with um, schools and communities of color and practitioners who also want to talk about um, spirit and intuition and this sort of deeper dive into what this work can be and its connections to indigenous practices and paradigms and ways of being in life, um, which involve perception and intuition uh, and how to be in a relational way. And so because of that gap and because I, I've worked with two teams of folks at CCJ. Our current team is called Illuminad, which is Spanish, which means to illuminate. And our, the past team was RJ in schools. And everybody that I've worked with on both teams have been amazing practitioners that because RJ is not a field where you, like someone in high school today could be like, I'm going to go major in RJ and do it. Um, I don't think that's the case. I hope that one day that would be the case. But I think that, you know, RJ is such a wide field, the way that applied theater or theater of the oppressed is, um, 
that there was everybody came in with from different disciplines and used their experience from different disciplines to really um, fill up the space of their own gifts and expressions. And so I wanted to document um, and archive the folks that I work with and all that they brought and just the ways that I've seen them be amazing in space and just to capture the conversations that we would have after a training or in the office or on the way to a training um, that went beyond the agenda and the, the specific topic that we were training for or with um so i wanted to capture all those voices and with our most recent season which is around interviewing our school partners around culture relationships and justice um i wanted to capture and honor the work of the school partners who've been doing amazing work for you know three four five years um who are also teachers for me in this work. And I wanted to capture the work that they were doing and the impacts that they were doing. Um, and the folks that work in schools, teachers, admin, are incredibly busy. And so it's challenging for them to sit down and document the amazing work that they're doing. And so often, a lot of this culture building work gets um, either gets lost if the culture is not sustained within the mm -hmm. school if someone leaves or the admin or the school culture team, or it becomes so ingrained in the school culture that folks are not able to pinpoint, oh, we do this because this was this one person's suggestion, or we do this because a student brought this to us. And so I, I just, I, I wanted to, if RJ is about narrative and story, I really wanted to use the media podcasting to capture all of those experiences um and so yeah so it, it was really important for me to do that and i needed something to shift from besides just training and coaching which i had been doing a lot of and i wanted to like shift into another realm with rj and so it's been a really beautiful experience for for me with uh, what you know about rj are there like one or two episodes that you would be like, hey, you should start with this one that uh, listeners of this podcast should go check out right now? You know, there's there's one that just this week at the time that as we're recording and having this conversation, I'm I'm prepping and producing the new season, which is about like expanding the perception of RJ. Um, and so I'm super excited about those. But I think um well, it'll have aired by the time this airs. So. Yeah. Um, well, so there was a... I did a, like a, a tiny series last spring around um, RJ in the community or he healers in the community. And um, Spirit is in Respiration, I think is the name of it. Uh, and it's about... It's with... Um, I interviewed uh, a really amazing yoga practitioner friend and teacher of mine. And we, he does some breathing practices uh, over the episode. And we talk about breathing and breath and trauma um, and relationships. And so that, I feel, has been a really powerful episode. And one that when I go back and look at the stats of who's listened, is one that folks listen to, have listened to a lot. Um, so that one is really powerful. Um, I think that's the one I would highlight in this moment yeah for sure how do you want to continue to grow in this work what's next for you what's next for me is continued 
documentation of this work, continued uh, research and study around intuition. And I want to study intuition um, because of my work as an applied theater artist and as a practitioner of theater of the oppressed, um, which for folks who don't know is a form of, form of um, an application of performance and theatrical practices with non with um like uh, with community uh to develop and present their own stories of conflict or challenge to be able to practice how to intervene in those conflicts and challenges that are existing um and then there's sort of that larger communal conflict aspect of the work and then there's this very psychological inner part of the work um, within the canon of theater of the oppressed. I also, every now and then, will be asked to facilitate, or the, the language in theater of the oppressed is jokering. The facilitator is called mm-hmm. the joker. Uh, theater of the oppressed is from Brazil. It's a practice from Brazil. It's um, attributed to Agosho Boal and uh, influenced by uh, the communities uh, within Brazil. Uh, he's, he's credited for the writing of it, but the work is also super... Um, super integrated from various practices that are cultural um, amongst Brazil. But there's been a few times when I've come in to, to joke or facilitate um, community building, utilizing the theater of the oppressed. And there's a couple of gaps that I think exist in, in that realm. And I think could be really filled in, filled in with some of the things that RJ is asking around harm, around who was impacted how was the relationship impacted? What needs to happen to make it right? And so my neck, what's next for me is actually researching and studying the intersection between theater of the oppressed and RJ mm-hmm. um, as a means of conflict. Or I'm super curious about this idea of how, what if conflict intervention was embodied? What, what if mediation was embodied as opposed to this is what happened to me. This is what I want for me to do. Um, and so what's next to me is similar to the, the next season of What You Know About RJ is expanding the viewpoint of what we think RJ is or should be or where we think RJ should exist. And so we previously have been working a lot with schools. We are now working a lot with community organizations and workplaces. Um, and so for me, I always lead by curiosity and where I'm really curious now is that intersection between T.O., Theater of the Oppressed, and R.J. Um, as a work of healing um, arts and healing justice. Yeah, th- there's so much in there to explore. And like you were saying, like restorative justice intersects with so many things. When we're like, if we define restorative justice broadly, right, with just like being in good relationship, being in right relationship, um, like there's so many ways to do that. The other way that you talked about that is um, plant medicine, which you do. Uh, how do you integrate that? You shared a little bit about like the spraying of the the oils and things, but like what, how else do you integrate that? Yeah, a lot of us SCCJ have taken classes with uh, hood herbalism, and hood herbalism is a, um, a community medicine program for um, BIPOC folks. Mm-hmm taught, created by uh, Berenice Dimas. And so there's workshops in, around how to use, you know, how to bring back 
ancestral knowledge around plants as medicine and as sources of resiliency um, and connecting to, to spirit. Well, not, not so much, I mean, that as an interpersonal journey, yes, but Hood Herbalism's really, goal is really around teaching folks um, about plant medicine and, uh, there, and to what is one's personal relationship to the plants. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when I started to develop deeper relationships with plants, um, and particularly around the concept of consent, is something that I'm super interested in because when you harvest a plant to make a spray or make a tea or make a, a balm, um, you the plant has to give permission to you before you before you pick it. Sorry, sorry. And so B A L M, not B O M B. B A L M. Yeah. I was looking at the transcript. <laughs> and I was like, just... That's not what he meant. That's not what he meant. <laughs> Bob, or just it's like in Spanish, um, okay, yeah, yeah. is the, the, also the way to say it. But uh, uh, B A L M. Um, yeah, so you, the plan has to give consent. And so that was a, another deep, deeper level of consent practice that I had to apply myself into after having spent years working with young folks around what is consent and what is a culture of consent. Um, and so the plants have taught me to pause, to ask questions, to wait, to listen, like all the things that we do in RJ that best impact a community when we utilize restorative practices. Um, so the plants have been really powerful, especially lemon balm, uh, which I write about in the chapter. And the, really the whole reason why, one of the biggest motivations for me in starting classes with hood herbalism were to figure out what was the tea that my abuela, my grandmother would, would give us when we were sick. Mm-hmm. And there was this one, there was these, there was two teas, but one in particular, whether it was a, a like a stomach ache or a headache or an earache, uh, she would make this tea and like power and magic and medicine, it would go away. And so I went in like really wanting to find what that plant was. And the first class is teas and tea making. And we learned about different, you know, steeping times and why you should cover herbal teas to lock the medicine in and as it's steeping. And the, there was a, a cup of tea that was being passed around and I took a sip and immediately my body knew what that was. And it was lemon balm. And so lemon balm has been really powerful um, for me. So they've taught me a lot. And lately I've been working with, with birds and with a bird healer um, and have been learning how to make bird essences from, uh, from feathers. Um, and that's a whole nother level of consent practicing and observation. And birds are also really powerful teachers and healers and super have a lot of significant spiritual powers for a lot of folks around, around this globe. Um, and so, yeah, so birds and plants have been, um, deep teachers for me yeah um and i mean that's not something that like i've really explored um and i think like that can the whole idea of interconnection right not just between people but between nature um is so important to continue uh to explore because it's not just that we're connected to each other as people but like all all beings on this earth um are are called to be in in good relationships 
Uh, I'm going to transition us into uh, the questions that I ask everyone. They're meant to be rapid fire, but uh, they often don't end up being. Um, define restorative justice. As a way of being in community with others and with self. You get to sit in circle with four other people, living or dead. Ooh. Who are they and what do you talk about? <sighs> oh my God, this is a question that I ask folks and I... <laughs> I love that I have it now as a question. Um, for folks, living or dead, who who wants to come out? Um, would love to... My abuela, uh, my grandmother passed away because of COVID last year. And so I would... I saw her a few months ago. I saw her not too long before she passed. But I would love to be in space with her. Um, I wasn't able to talk. I told her about my work with plants, but not my work with birds. So I would love to talk to her about hummingbirds. Um, she had a lot of birds when, when I was little. So my abuela, Emma Salcido, Emma Berumen Salcido, um, I would love to sit in circle with a queer ancestor of mine, um, Particularly one, yeah, and so I, yeah, and so, um, you know, often before a training or a circle, like I'll, I'll, I'll call in somebody in, and so sometimes if I'm writing something, often I, I will do the same thing, actually, is I'll, I'll I ask, invite somebody to sit beside me as I'm writing, and so since some of the things that I write, well, all of the plays that I've written, most of them have some type of queer aspect, um, content character uh that represents myself as well and so i i there's a always a queer ancestor that i call in and so i would love to sit in circle with them um and so with that the next person would be chabela vargas who is was a a mexican singer she sang lancheras she would dress up in in men's clothing of the time um and she like had a very raspy voice and she uh, had women around her and she was very out in her own self and my abuela loved her and I was never I was not able to tell my abuela about my queer identity but my abuela really loved Chabela Vargas and so I feel that there's since she has a connection with Chabela Vargas that I want to assume that there's a connection she has with my own queerness. Um, and my while I was very Catholic and, and but, but Catholic in a very Mexican uh, sense. And so it went beyond uh, church practice, but very indigenous practice. And so my abuela, a queer ancestor, Chavela Vargas, and the fourth person, I feel like that some someone who... I think they're all very playful in the circle already, but the other person um, would be, I think a writer, maybe like Gloria Antaldua, that's a powerful circle right there. Um, or like Pablo, Pablo Neruda, or, um, you know what? It would be awesome to have Prince in that circle. <laughs> so I'm gonna, I'm gonna add the purple one as my fourth choice. And that's like a hell of a circle, like, Right there. Beautiful. Beautiful. And David, you could be the circle keeper. <laughs> so 
You're in there too. Beautiful. Thank you. No one's ever included me in their circle <laughs> in answering that question, so I, I really appreciate that. Um, what is one thing you want everyone listening to this podcast to know? Oh, um, I would love folks to know that the next season of What You Know About RJ podcast is going to be the biggest, craziest, activating um I, you can't feel the feet underneath you when you're in the ocean type of thing. And so I would love for folks to tune in to season three, which is coming up uh, soon or will be out by the time this is out. But we're heating up topics of whiteness in the work, white supremacy in the workplace and settler colonialism. And if I'm a settler of color, what do I do with that privilege? How do I become an accomplice with indigenous folks or... How do I interrogate my own family stories around trauma to support my understanding around discipline and school? And so I would love for folks to be on that journey with us for for season three. Yeah, absolutely. And Apple, Spotify, all the places. We'll definitely link it in the the show notes here. that's, I know that's part of the answer, but how else can people support you and your work in the ways that you want to be supported? So RJ and art are also very similar because they require somebody there to witness. Mm. And so um, just like for my story, to, for me to say my story, the impact is stronger if it's heard. And that's where Circle is powerful, but it's also where the audience in the theater is really powerful, or the reader is really powerful. So to support my work, uh, this this is the year that I'm going to transition from playmaking and development and producing to film work. Um, and so the play that's in my chapter of the CRJ book, um, I'm working towards developing a short film of it. And so for folks to support my work, um, for folks to support the vulnerability of me as an artist, uh, somebody to witness is important. And so, um, again, as part of our season three, I'm hoping that the I recorded the, the full play with a cast of actors. Um, and I'm hoping that that will be included in the podcast. And so I, my wish or my intention setting or my desire is for folks to um to be in the audience and to be a witness and to listen to the stories that i have or to the stories of another artist another um a person of color queer artist trans artist bipoc artist and so i think just the the way, the way to support me to support other artists is to to listen and to watch um yeah to support to be a witness absolutely and can i like direct people to your instagram for updates on all that yeah definitely Definitely. thank you uh we'll also link that in the show notes um and the final question i realized i didn't ask before it's usually that's usually the last question but before you answer you have to know that you have to help me in this who's one person that i should have on this podcast one person that you should have on this podcast is Edward. <laughs> I think Edward 
it should have a sit down with you. Uh, I think that would be a really powerful episode in, in, in conversation. So I'm happy to to push the universe for that to happen yes, as well. we're going to make it happen. So I got you. <laughs> uh, well, thank you so much for the time, Gilbert. Um, it was really good to get to connect. I know this isn't the last time you and I are going to get to connect. Everyone else, please go follow uh, Gilbert on Instagram, follow What Do You Know About RJ, the podcast on all the platforms, download, subscribe, rate, review. <laughs> that podcast and this one so more people know about it um it's just been a real pleasure to get to talk to you over the last hour or so thank you david also for me it was really beautiful to like i said earlier to not be the interviewer and just to to submit and surrender to your the container that you created and so i'm super i felt super lifted and appreciated and super grounded and like you know the ability to take whatever risk i needed to or wanted to in the responses so much uh, appreciation to you. Well, thank you. I don't know if I'm going to leave that in, but thank you. <laughs> and welcome. to everyone else, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week. Elise here. Here are some things that I've thought about from this episode today. Gilbert made a great connection between the arts and restorative justice that really stuck out to me. I am someone who's very involved in my arts community, and I think that it is so important to connect to your passions in your community and that there are ways to tie restorative justice into those as well. For example, with theater, as he was mentioning, it can connect to empathy by stepping into someone else's shoes. It can connect to expression of your own emotions and so much more. What are the ways that you connect restorative justice to your interests? Also, I really enjoyed the encouragement that Gilbert gave to pause and think. In your busy life, how can you find moments to pause and think and check in with yourself? Before we part, I would like to quickly remind you about our Future Ancestors Collective and all the information that you need can be found in the show notes below. Thank you so much for listening today and see you in the next one. Like what you heard? Please subscribe, rate, review, and share this podcast on whatever platform you're using right now. It really helps us further amplify this work. You can also support us by following us on our social platforms, signing up for our email list, rocking our new merch, joining our Patreon, or signing up for a workshop. So many options! Links to everything in the show notes and on our website, AmplifyRJ.com. Thanks so much for listening. We'll talk to you next week.